It is Thursday, February the 23rd. In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman will provide a practical update on the fifth booster that has just been recommended. He will explain which of your patients are most eligible, which of the options you should choose from the various permutations and combinations of jabs available in Australia. Dr. Groman will describe some of the many other respiratory infections, not to mention MPOX, that are likely to spike over the next number of weeks with a number of high-profile mass events happening this month. And he will give evidence-based views on all the current issues around COVID and its various cousins that are threatening public health and well-being right now. Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. I'm a board member director of the Immunisation Coalition and I've put the website down below. What we do is promote vaccination around Australia. Uh, I also have an adjunct appointment at the University of Sydney. I consult to the World Health Organisation, environmental pathogens and also bioselect, biointellect, which are groups that help bring vaccines to market. I'm a virologist by training and, uh, and, and consult in a number of areas, including the environmental area. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. So for today, we can look at these following topics. Firstly, what do we know for sure? Where are we now? Have a quick look at Omicron and its subvariants. Should we be concerned? The disease course. Uh, vaccines, what we have, uh, boosters that we have now and those that, that are in the pipeline, antiviral drugs, what's available and what should be used, and some concluding remarks. And I'll preempt that by saying, yes, why vaccines are only part of the answer. Vaccines will never control the pandemic. There is still the need for mass sensible restrictions, education and communications if we want to control this pandemic. There's a need for vaccines that actually stop infection uh, and also one-shot vaccines, particularly if they're going to be uh, in combination with influenza or other vaccines. But we need vaccines that will stop infection, not simply serious disease. We need to go to the next generation. We need more antiviral use. Uh, and then the question, what do we need to do now or what can we do now? So what do we know for sure? We know that the current Omicron is highly infectious. We know it's dominating globally and it's been dominating for well over a year now. There's been no change. There's no moving on from Omicron to Pi, for example. There are more waves to come, there's no doubt, simply because mutation occurs. We know Omicron spreads efficiently, particularly in closed settings, those with poor natural ventilation like hospitals, care homes, buses, planes and so on. And we know that good ventilation, sanitizers, masks and social distancing will significantly help diminish the risk of spread. We know the severity of disease is diminishing over time. We know the virus is mutating constantly and we do get new subvariants. These will definitely emerge. Whether a new variant will emerge uh, seems unlikely now, now that we've had Omicron for well over a year. Normally the new variant, if you look back in time, was occurring every six months from, alpha, uh, from the original strain to Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon and others. 
We now know that drugs like ivermectin hydrochloroquine are not effective and there's no need to revisit that anymore. Uh, we know that severe community restrictions are not effective in halting disease spread uh, simply because of asymptomatic carriage. People with mild illness who don't think it's Omicron or don't get tested, these are the spreaders in the community, uh, even with uh, serious restrictions on the community. We know that it's essential in the initial stages of a novel pandemic prior to tests and vaccines becoming available. Sure, we do need community restriction and lockdown, but it needs to be brief. <clears throat> we do need to protect the health services from being overwhelmed, and the current vaccines have done that, and we know that mandates are counterproductive. They cause more stress and more difficulty in the community, and of course there's many other medical uh, conditions that go undiagnosed because of severe restrictions and lockdowns. We also know that we need at least three doses of vaccine. We know that current vaccines do not stop transmission or mild disease. And I couldn't underline that enough. There's a general view that because it's a vaccine, it should stop transmission and disease completely, a bit like measles or hepatitis A vaccine. Well, this is not the case for these vaccines. They will not stop transmission. Heterologous vaccination gives better protection. We know that, so getting mix and match of vaccines uh, gives better protection, at least more immunogenicity. And hybrid gives the best, that's having a vaccine, but also the natural infection. Adverse events do occur, and severe adverse events are very rare, but they do affect about one in 70 to 100,000 people. Uh, especially men under 30 who have a higher risk of myocarditis from mRNA vaccines. We know that long COVID is real. The vast majority of cases, however, resolve within a year. Mostly, in fact, 95% of them within about eight months. We know that current antiviral treatments are reasonably effective if given within 24 hours of diagnosis. We also know that PCR tests are the most accurate for detecting COVID-19, and rat tests are useful if symptomatic. Now, the sensitivity of rat tests is markedly diminishing, and personally, I wouldn't recommend using them at all because the sensitivity has dropped markedly. I think that rat tests themselves and people's attitude to the tests uh, are helping the virus spread through the community. We need PCR tests and we need people to isolate once they're positive. There are significant costs to the community in form of mental health, undiagnosed diseases, delayed hospital care, interrupted education for students, general economic activity that we all know about. There remains an urgent need for vision and unified action across the nation, preferably from a single authoritative independent health institution like a CDC to tackle the next novel pandemic. We know that there will be another similar pandemic. We get three to four per century, and we don't know when in that century. We know the benefit of a booster dose for healthy people under 50 is less certain. The use of mRNA vaccine in healthy persons under 30 is not done in some European countries at all. It's not clear that the benefits outweigh the risks. There's this strong possibility of myocarditis, particularly in adolescent and young adult males. The World Health Organization made the following statement, data to support an additional dose for healthy younger populations are limited. Preliminary data suggests that in younger people, uh, the benefit uh, does not outweigh the risk. Speaking of WHO, where are we now? Let's have a global snapshot. Over 756 million people have had COVID-19, and that is clearly an underestimate. 
there have been over 6 million, nearly 7 million deaths. It's actually a very low case fatality rate, but a shocking number of deaths nevertheless. We've had all these cases and deaths despite the fact that more than 13 billion vaccine doses have been administered. You can see there in the graphs how uh, cases and deaths also go in waves, not necessarily according to the season, but often due to activity of human beings. Um, uh, but there is some seasonality there in that there are more cases during the winter period, just like we see for flu. In Australia, we've had over 11.3 million cases. We've had 18,190 deaths. Again, too many. If you look at the top graph, uh, vaccines were rolled out in February uh, 2021. We still had restrictions at that time. Moving forward to October 21, when restrictions were basically completely lifted, despite the fact that we had 96% of people having two dose course at least, and some, um, I don't think too many, three by then, but certainly two. Um, we got an enormous number of cases. Vaccines don't stop this pandemic. They don't stop infection. They don't stop spread. And you see the same similar graph with deaths. As cases increase, necessarily the case of deaths will increase because unfortunately the older, more vulnerable populations uh, will uh, get COVID-19, generally through asymptomatic means. Once restrictions are gone, then possibly directly. And so the death rates also go up. We're not in a good position in Australia. We are in fact a hotspot. The top graph uh, shows cases per capita compared to the rest of the world. The hotspots are Australia uh, and parts of South America, South Africa and the EU. Uh, now this, you know, this is quite serious really. Uh, we're, we're a hotspot and the main spread is between the 20 and 40 year olds. Australia used to have a low death rate, but now it's got one of the highest death rates in the world. Um, it's so unfortunate, and this is because of the complete lifting of restrictions and almost a total disregard of COVID. Vaccines are not going to protect people against this virus. We do have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, however. Um, again, together with the USA and the Americas and so on, and uh, China, although China have poorer vaccines, Japan has a very high rate. Um, but the virus is still spreading in all those countries. A very stark reminder that the African nations in the centre of the graph have very little access to vaccines still and very few people are vaccinated. I think it's worth looking at seroprevalence. I think I showed this slide last time I spoke. The fact is uh, studies in England and Australia and other places now have shown very, very clearly that 80 to 90 percent, if not nearly 100 percent of people have got antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Every single age group. This is because of two reasons. One is vaccination, certainly. And the second thing is natural infection. So also from Public Health England, we see high levels of antibody to COVID-19 in primary and secondary school students. So the top bar shows primary school pupils that are unvaccinated. You see that over 80% of them have antibody. So they've had the natural infection, probably subclinically or mildly. In secondary school pupils, uh, it's due to both getting vaccines uh, and getting the natural infection. But again, uh, nearly 100% of people have antibodies uh, for one reason or, or, or the other, but a large proportion there have also been unvaccinated and have still got antibodies. We see something similar in Australia. Blood bank studies, uh, this one by the Kirby Institute, 
show that anti-spike antibodies are very high in all jurisdictions, 98%. So anti-nuclear capsid seroprevalence is highest among donors aged 18 to 29 at 27%. That's not surprising because that's where most of the spread is. In another study by NCIRS last year, children and adolescents, at least 64% of 0 to 19 year olds have been infected with COVID-19. Spike antibodies universally detected in vaccinated individuals. So 65% of vaccinated individuals also had nuclear capsid antibodies signifying past infection. And again, most of this would have been mild or subclinical. Should we be worried about Omicron? Well, as I mentioned before, we haven't seen a new variant in some time. We have seen a number of sub-variants and they come and go, all the pretty colours at the bottom of the graph there. Um, tell us all the various variants over the last few months. The ones that are dominating are XBB, XBF, BA2.75 and BQs, and a variety of them. And the vast majority, depending what country you look at, are essentially XBB. Uh, in our part of the world, it's an XBF, but we also see in Europe quite a lot of BQ and BA2.75. And now what we're seeing is horses for courses, so to speak. We're seeing different variants pop up and dominate in different parts of the world, which tells me as a virologist that it's basically running out of uh, mutations, so to speak. Uh, where do we go now? We haven't got a single virus like Delta dominating the world. We know that this virus constantly changes, but there is a need to stop catastrophizing the appearance of every subvariant and every mutation, as you see in the press and social media. Uh, we will get new mutations, they're very, very slight, so we're going to get new viruses, but current vaccines are holding up okay. They may be coming less perfect over time, uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but new vaccines will come to solve that problem if people want to continue with their vaccination. We know there will be more waves. We know there will be new subvariants, And I might add, the latest data from China continues to resemble, um, all, all the viruses they have continue to resemble known circulating variants. So there's no need to be overly concerned about the various outbreaks in China leading to a new variant like Pi um, or whether they're new subvariants. So we haven't seen 27 out of 31 provinces have not shown anything new. They've all been seeded from, uh, China's been seeded from countries surrounding China. So what about the clinical course? If we look at the clinical course up the top there, we see viral replication, then the innate immune response in blue, then cellular immune responses in the dotted line. Um, and we also see humoral responses in the orange dotted line. And if that, uh, if viral replication is acute and then drops off within seven days, the person normally gets mild disease. Where it can go wrong and become more severe disease is if the cellular responses are a little bit slow uh, and um, the humoral responses are very slow. Then what happens is that we basically get more severe disease and this happens usually goes to about 21 days and can be a bit longer, it can also be long COVID. So the dot points on the right, uh, some people do have significant sequelae, many have poor neutralizing antibody, antibody can wane leading to reinfection and we do get the post-COVID syndrome or long COVID as is colloquially known. At the bottom we do have therapy that can be used at various points. So 
There are prophylactic antibodies that can be used. Got a slide on that later. We've got antivirals that can be used either prophylactically or within the first few uh, days of infection. We've got immunomodulators like IL-6. We've got therapeutic antibodies as well in the arsenal that can be used to fight this disease if it becomes more severe. We also have rat tests and PCR tests, but I really want everyone to note that apart from rat tests dropping in their sensitivity, they're only useful probably within the first uh, one day one through to day six. They're useful when you're symptomatic, not when you're pre-symptomatic. PCR tests, however, are useful from pre-symptomatic days right through to at least day seven, eight, and maybe even longer, uh, depending on the person. Obviously, this clinical course changes if people have underlying disease or immunocompromised issues. The disease course itself is, well, quite straightforward from a virology point of view. The virus enters the cell there at number one, uh, then enters the epithelium, uh, then it fuses with uh, the vesicle and its RNA is released and then uh, there's uh, virus assembly and then virus release and the attachment of course uh, is to the ACE2 receptor but it may not be the only receptor of the cell that can attach the virus and there's some evidence coming through now there are many other receptors that it seems the virus can attach to at least in vitro and this needs to be investigated and may well be an explanation or part of the explanation as to why vaccines aren't so successful uh, and the virus can attach via other receptors. So um, uh, the virus is then ingested by an APC and then T helper cell, cytotoxic T cell, toxic T cell and so on, and then the B cell, uh, part of the immune response leading to antibody. Um, why it leads to reinfection is unclear. Why the memory cells aren't working and the T cells aren't as efficient after reinfection after some time is very unclear at this stage. So let's look further at the clinical symptoms. The first point is that they're highly variable. There are many positive individuals that are asymptomatic and exhibit only minor symptoms but most people would report fever, dry and persistent cough and fatigue at least, sometimes loss of taste and smell, appetite, headaches, sore throat, myalgia. Some people describe rigors, intestinal discomfort and diarrhea, and some even ocular manifestations. Severe symptoms leading to hospitalization progress rapidly to hypoxia and respiratory distress. And obviously that requires supplemental oxygen and ventilator support if needed particularly in the elderly and those with underlying comorbidities. And there is this unusual presentation similar to Kawasaki disease, termed MISC, uh, in children. And here um, what we see is non-paralent conjunctivitis, polymorphic rash, mucosal changes, swollen extremities, and a high proportion have hypotension. The clinical symptoms can lead to multifocal pathogenesis, sometimes instigating destruction of blood vessel endothelial cells. This can lead to blood clots, strokes, heart failure, heart attack, as well as kidney and neurological issues. Then the cytokine storm that we know well, and then patients with a pre-existing neuromuscular condition uh, can also have issues. There can be an exacerbation of the, new, of the neuromuscular degenerative condition. Uh, there, can, or, uh, there can be autoimmune conditions, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and there can also be virus reactivation of latent viruses such as the herpes group, the HDLVs, and sometimes even enteroviruses. We can look at the COVID-19 landscape 
and we see down the bottom that ARDS is particularly important, disruption of the ACE2 epithelium, dysfunctional type 1 IFN response leading to myeloid inflammation, and then it can lead to cytokine-driven hyperinflammation and lymphopenia, and also lymphoid organ failure. So these are all issues that can be caused by the virus either directly or it can be in sequence due to the immune response and the virus together. Uh, and, and these are the more serious manifestations of COVID-19. There are long-term effects to COVID-19 and it's called post-COVID-19 syndrome or colloquially long COVID. It does have other names such as post-COVID conditions, long-haul COVID-19, post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection, uh, and these various terms are used in scientific papers to date. Anyone who gets COVID-19 can have long-term effects, anyone, including people with no symptoms or mild illness with COVID-19, returning or ongoing symptoms of more than four weeks after getting COVID-19 is part of the definition for most people, although I'll show you a WHO definition shortly. So the most commonly reported symptoms, fatigue and dizziness, uh, symptoms get worse after physical or mental effort, recurrent fever and difficulty breathing. And more rarely you get neurological symptoms, as well as muscle pain, heart issues, digestive issues, blood clots, vascular issues, rash, changes in the menstrual cycle, and again, the reactivation of herpes viruses, often leading to shingles, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and Bell's palsy. So the definition as provided by WHO on the left is the continuational development of new symptoms three months after the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection, with these symptoms lasting for at least two months and with no other explanation. And the symptoms that they list are fatigue, shortness of breath, and cognitive dysfunction. They estimate that 10 to 20% of people are affected globally. And they believe that 17 million people across the European region alone have experienced long COVID during the first two years of the pandemic. In Australia, there's the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare have done an interesting review. They estimate that five to 10% of people in Australia have had symptoms lasting for more than three months, but the vast majority resolving within 12 months. In fact, 95% in about eight months. And they've identified key risk factors, which include severe il illness, comorbidities, being female and mid-adult, and also being a mid-adult age, in a mid-adult age group. Two COVID-19 vaccination doses are associated with a 13 to 47% lower risk of symptoms uh, persisting beyond four weeks. But I'll add a caveat to that saying that the papers are not strong and there aren't many of them. But nevertheless, there is some association by having at least two doses that there is a reduction of long COVID. So the long-term effects can lead to organ damage, uh, inflammation and the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which we've already covered. The risk factors, it's more common in adults and children, particularly females. Uh, about 20% of adults have long-term effects and severe illness with COVID-19, especially if hospitalized or needing intensive care is a major risk factor. Now, recent research from CDC at the end of last year showed that COVID-19 can cause brain abnormalities six months after symptoms are gone. And they did an interest, oh, the groups there did an interesting study looking at changes to the brain stem and front lobe in areas of the brain. 
associated with fatigue, insomnia, anxiety, depression, headaches, and cognitive issues. They use a special MRI to detect and monitor neurological conditions such as microbleeds, vascular malformation, brain tumors, and stroke. And there's more to come in this area. Uh, there's a lot more to learn about long COVID and particularly some of the more serious manifestations, despite the fact that the vast majority of people do in fact recover. There are a small number of people that also seem to have issues to do with the brain. What vaccines do we have? Nothing's really changed since last year. We have the AstraZeneca, Moderna, Novavax and Pfizer, mRNA and recombinant protein vaccines, and also the viral vector vaccine of AstraZeneca. Uh, just to emphasize that heterologous vaccination or booster is best in terms of immunogenicity and efficacy, effectiveness, uh, and even better than that is hybrid, where uh, there are a variety of vaccines given to a person, they also get the natural infection. I wanted to make the point about studies on these vaccines that yes, they all have acceptable and comparable immunogenicity, efficacy, effectiveness, and safety. And the studies were done involving 30 to 40,000 people. But this only gives us a one in 10,000 chance of seeing a serious event. There were no serious events reported in the studies that involved 30 to 40,000 people. To be able to determine a one in a hundred thousand chance, you need at least 300,000, in other words, real world studies before you start seeing myocarditis, blood clots, TTS, or any other issue. There are, however, a number of vaccines in development in the pipeline. Some are combined influenza and COVID vaccines. So we know that Novavax, a protein-based vaccine, is currently in phase one, two studies for a combined vaccine, and it's highly immunogenic, well-tolerated, we know Moderna is in a phase one for a combined COVID flu vaccine as well, and in addition, a three-in-one, including RSV. And again, the data there looks good. <clears throat> There's also new vaccines re registered recently uh, or in very late phase three studies that are worth mentioning. These are variant-specific or multivariant-specific booster vaccines. Moderna's got its variant-specific vaccine targeting Beta, Delta, and Omicron, it's now registered and can be used. Pfizer BioNTech targeted alpha and delta variants, that's now registered and can be used. And these will be as effective as any other vaccine when it comes to the current Omicron strains. Novavax protein-based vaccine has a phase three program conducted in Australia targeting subvariants. They've got monovalent and bivalent formulations in adults previously vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine. And the data there really does look excellent as well and it should be registered soon. Combination strategies, this is a slide from Moderna. Um, combination strategies involving mRNA vaccines have a COVID mRNA as well as a flu mRNA candidate, which they combine together to give their COVID flu vaccine candidate. And then they've got the trivalent, which is a COVID mRNA vaccine, the flu vaccine candidate and an RSV candidate. That gives us an adult pan-respiratory vaccine candidate. If the clinical trials are good, then these could be incredibly useful against um, all three agents. However, boosters and bivalent mRNA vaccines do not give any significant protection over current vaccines. Immunogenicity, frankly, isn't everything. Fourth and fifth dose boosters are not recommended for healthy persons. mRNA vaccine risk benefit for those under 30 is actually poor and marginal for those under 50. And there's little protection, if any, against transmission in any age group.
So let's look at the Itagi booster advice from just a week or two ago. It's quite clear that the, for people with no risk factors, people with no risk factors, the vaccine is in fact not recommended except for people that are over 65. And for those that do have risk factors who are unhealthy in some way, for the under fives, the vaccines, the new vaccines are not recommended. For five to 17 years, they should be considered, but there are risks to do with myocarditis and that needs to be taken into account. For 18 to 64 years, they are recommended for people with underlying issues. And for over 65, of course, they're recommended for people that have underlying issues. So at risk includes all adults age 65 or older, residents of aged care or disability care, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people aged 50 years or older, people who are severely immunocompromised aged 16 years or older, and people aged 16 years or older with a disability or significant health needs, multiple comorbidities and so on. So if you just dwell on that slide, um, you can see that it's quite different to a target advice previously. So there are now really, it's really only recommended for people over 65 and for those with underlying issues. It can be considered, of course, by any age group. If you've got no, fact, no risk factors, then people can make a choice if they decide to get a vaccine uh, for some reason. For example, travel, it might be um, a good idea to get a COVID vaccine before traveling overseas, going to large festivals and so on, depending on the risk. What about adverse events? The TGA has public reporting of adverse events. And you see the rate in the top left is actually quite low. It's only 2.1 per thousand doses. And most of those reports are for AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccine. That's not surprising. They're being used the most. Um, total reports for Spikevax and Novavax uh, vaccines are low. Um, and again, they haven't been used as much. That's just a numbers thing. Uh, but the total rate of 2.1 per thousand is actually incredibly low. Now that's bound to be an underestimate, no doubt. And this is just people or doctors or nurses, medical groups reporting adverse reactions into the TGA directly. But the TGA also reports rare serious side effects. Myocarditis, it's known but a rare side effect of both mRNA vaccines. TTS, again very rare a problem that seemed to arise with the um, AstraZeneca vaccine. 14 deaths have been recorded to date according to the TGA in people from 21 to 81 years, 13 related to the AstraZeneca, one related to Spikevax. I think uh, Atagi definitely made a mistake um, with advice previously with these vaccines. The AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, or the confusion that arose, whether it was over 70, over 60, under 60, 50 to 60, uh, under 50 or not, and so on, um, was really very unfortunate because decisions were made without enough data. Uh, and data changed as time went on, as data was being collected. The AstraZeneca vaccine was a very good vaccine. And if people had been educated as to what the symptoms might be with TTS, which was incredibly rare, uh, then that vaccine could have been rolled out, particularly to the over 70s with a lot of confidence and even the over 50s. So same with the mRNA. The signal didn't come again because data wasn't uh, available or people didn't wait for the data because of political imperatives, health imperatives. Uh, again, was a pity because the 
uh, vaccine itself started to affect young adults, particularly under 30, and really with the rate even of one in 70,000 um, is really a bit too high. We've certainly not allowed vaccines to be used with uh, serious issues at that head level of one in 70,000. It's easy to look back, but um, it's important that those lessons get learned. We really do need to wait for all the data before we start giving vaccines to healthy people. We can certainly take a risk, I think, as a community with people that are older and people that are unwell, but not people that are healthy. And that's something that's a personal view. It's not the view of Immunisation Coalition or WHO or anybody else that I'm associated with. But I think it's very, very important to get as much data as possible and not jump the gun uh, to make decisions about giving vaccines to the healthy. Uh, advice has also changed from ATAGI uh, to do with children. At one point it was recommended and now it's not. mRNA vaccine side effects from the FDA is an interesting snapshot to look at as well. Now they give snapshots from time to time, in this case one of 42,000 patients towards the end of last year. 2.5% reporting cardiac issues, much higher than TGA reports. Uh, GI issues 24% and fatigue 17%. This is post mRNA vaccine, not Novavax or AstraZeneca. So there are these side effects that the public is beginning not to accept. Uh, and if you did even a simple pub test, these kinds of issues are reported by people, not necessarily the TGA, but hopefully to GPs and so on. And it would be very interesting to get the right data from people in the community that are suffering from these things when it comes to mRNA or other vaccines. There are treatments. We know we've got antivirals, antibodies, anticoagulants, dexamethasone, corticosteroids, oxygen. Um, there's still uh, some evidence to say that uh, statins in combination with ARBs can also be useful as adjunct therapy. Uh, micronutrients may also be useful, particularly in the deficient. So we have Evershield, good for pre-exposure, prevention of COVID-19, um, Sotromavab, Again, if used within first five days, uh, can be very, very useful to moderate disease. Remdesivir as well in adults that are hospitalized. Monupiravir should not be given routinely anymore. It's not terribly effective. And then there's Paxlovid. Uh, this is the one really to use. It's far more efficacious than Monupiravir. Nevertheless, there are issues when it comes to contraindications. And I'd refer everyone to the TGA website here because uh, there are so many contraindications, I couldn't possibly get through them all. But um, those that are 70 years or older, regardless of risk factors, can take this drug. Um, 50 years of age and older with two additional risk factors, uh, it's also recommended. First Nations person, 30 years of age and older with one risk factor, it's also recommended. And 18 years of age or older with moderately to severely immunocompromised conditions, it's also recommended. This is a review, um, a, a meta-analysis of a number of studies on the use of statins, which shows it to be quite positive. We still need definitive studies, very difficult to do an RCT clinical trial, but nevertheless, uh, these various cohort and partial RCT studies show quite clearly uh, that statins might well be useful in the reduction of 28 to 30 day all-cause mortality. And this area really does need to be pursued and is being pursued by a number of people. 
supplements and micronutrients won't dwell on very long, except to say that all these are useful, we know what they do, but uh, there are no clinical studies to support them. Uh, if anything, they're only really useful in people that are deficient in these areas, uh, but they might be useful as, as, adju as adjuncts. So just brief conclusion about treatments. Yes, there's very good evidence for the use of steroids, especially dexamethasone, anticoagulants. There's positive evidence, at least for statins, uh, so they should be considered. Uh, there's some evidence, again, uh, for various supplements. It's likely that effective treatments will be available before an effective vaccine, in my view, and there's still an urgent need to find new safe antiviral treatments that can be taken over the counter. Uh, you could do a rattle PCR test prior um, to going to a chemist and receiving an antiviral drug. However, uh, however, it's very, very important that the history is known because there are contraindications. And from that point of view, really, people should go to their GPs. So a few concluding remarks. We are left with still a lot of critical questions. We still have a global problem. We tend to think of it as a problem in Sydney or Melbourne or Australia or Victoria or some local region, but it's a global problem. And while it's a global problem, it will always be a local problem. COVID will infect and reinfect. There will be new subvariants. There may or may not be a new variant. There's a need to transition to and maintain a steady state of low level transmission. Um, in a way, people need to get Omicron. I know this sounds like a strange thing to say, but it's a very mild virus. It's, in my view, almost a vaccine virus, very close to, to it because the vast majority of people have very mild symptoms or asymptomatic infection. Will the virus mutate and force new vaccines to be made? Probably yes. Uh, people will make new vaccines, but the ones that have been made so far aren't that terrific, and they're not significantly better than current vaccines yet. We still don't know the actual correlates of protection, uh, which normally we would know before releasing a vaccine on the market. Will vaccines prevent transmission? The answer is no. We are left with endless boosters if, if you need them. If you're immunocompromised or in un, unwell, then you probably will need a booster every six months or so. Will the community accept vaccines that might not be optimal? I don't think so. I think that ship is going to sail. It won't be accepted by the community and it's very difficult to get people to have a fourth dose or fifth dose. Will vaccines prevent severe disease? Yes, very likely. But the virus is attenuating, so we, you know, the, as I said before, intermatter before, it might end up being an attenuated virus that will simply pass through the community, it's a bit like other coronaviruses or other mild flu viruses, um, respiratory vi viruses that affect people. Should masks in close spaces return? I think so, yes. I'm a great advocate of um, maintaining awareness, using masks in close spaces, poorly ventilated areas, uh, hand washing, um, and sanitizer use, social distancing where appropriate. I think that's the only thing that's been shown that will control this pandemic and will help prevent the virus from being spread to older people and vulnerable people. There's such a need to be proactive and not just reactive. And so far we've just been reactive. We still need to be much more proactive on education, surveillance, testing, vaccines and treatments. And while there's a hell of a lot of good work that's been done and is still going on, we need to continue. We can't rest on our laurels. Things are not getting any better. We are the hotspot in the world for cases and deaths at the moment. That might change next month. Uh, could just be a catch up, 
in relation to the deaths, but we are nevertheless the hotspot at the moment in the world. We need second generation vaccines. Ideally, vaccines that must stop transmission. That's the, that's the holy grail. That's where we have to head. We must also have improved safety profiles. High levels or even well, low to moderate levels of TTS or myocarditis and pericarditis are really not acceptable to people in the community. COVID vaccines must gain acceptance in the community. A combination COVID flu rather than concomitant injection, one in each arm, would be a lot preferable. Annual vaccination would make sense. We could have a launch in March, say, for COVID and flu, and then biannual for those at higher risk, say in September, October. And of course, at any time for people who do want one for whatever reason they want one. mRNA, self-amplifying RNA, and recombinant protein vaccines are currently the most successful platforms. There, are, there is a group in the US also looking at nanoparticles studded with COVID proteins. That also looks to be quite good. There have been intranasal and oral vaccines produced. They give a prompt and faster immune response than intramuscular vaccines, but they've not been as successful. There are new vaccines that are coming. Uh, one using gamma irradiation, uh, where irradiation is used and no chemicals are adjuvant, and that's looking very, very promising for a pneumococcal vaccine. And we wait to see the data on flu and COVID uh, beyond the lab. And there are also maps, uh, which are patches, some microarray patches. They hold much promise as well. They've been around for about a decade or more, uh, but vaccines can be coated on these things. They're highly stable and can be transported at room temperature and are easily applied and give quite a good immune response as well. So there are good things to look forward to in the future for all vaccines and particularly COVID-19. Just want to thank you all for listening and also thank these various organisations for information and data that's been used. Thank you again. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.